If you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. You know, every believer is a, a reader of the Bible, right? I think that's something that we can't go up without. It should be our daily bread, as it's been said, truly. You know, and there's two things that I think we have to keep in mind when we read the Word. What we need to do is, number one, we need to go into the time tunnel of what was going on in what we're reading. Try to put yourself in the culture of the day. And if you can't do that, try to get some written material commentaries or a good study Bible that can help you understand something about the culture of the time in that era. The second thing that we want to do is we want to pull out of the Scriptures, out from the history of what the Bible is recording, and bring it into the present. So we have to transport it to ourselves to make it applicable to us, to you and I. We're not just reading a history book of something that happened in ancient times, but we're reading something that has relevance for us as well in the 21st century. And so as we read in the book of 1 Samuel 21, hopefully we can come to that conclusion. And one thing I want to add, I should have mentioned this in my uh, announcements some of you may have read the paper or seen in the, uh, on your television screen uh, the news about a firefighter that died in Worcester. Uh, very sad. Father of three children, 39 years of age. Um, he himself was a lieutenant in the fire department, went in to try to save two of his firefighter comrades and, and managed to get them out, but was wrongly informed that there was a baby on the third floor and as a result, he ended up being engulfed in the flames and never got out and ended up dying. That particular day that he died, that afternoon, he and his family were going to be heading to Disney World for a vacation. And remember the Menard family, that's where Brother Ken Kozak is today as a police officer in Worcester uh, at the uh, funeral, uh, excuse me, the wake of uh, firefighter Menard. Just remember that family. It must be awfully, awfully hard uh, to go through something like that. Okay, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We've skipped a couple chapters from where we left off before. Just to give you a little survey of that, it was just simply David's flight from Saul. As, as we read a lot of the history of, of David's life, we discover that Saul's pursuing him. Paul started, excuse me, Saul started to get envious of David right off the bat after he defeated Goliath. And it said he eyed him from that day forward and had a constant jealousy, especially when he heard the words of the woman when they returned from the battle saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. That drew something out of the heart of Saul, which was pride and envy and jealousy. And he could not get himself ridded of that. And he had a constant pursuit of David's life. So David, after several occasions where it was very evident that there was no hope for him to stay in the presence of Saul, even though he had played that musical instrument to drive away the evil spirit and to calm his spirit down, Saul's that is, David uh, was was shot at by the javelin of, of Saul to try to pin him against the wall and kill him on two different occasions. Then Jonathan finally tried to make an appeal to Saul for David and it became very evident that Saul was intending to kill David. When David got that final word, he left the area. And we find him now going in the area of Jerusalem. He goes to the, the what was called the house of God at the time 
where the tabernacle was now located. When the children of Israel, as you know, when they came out of Egypt, God had said to them, Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. In Exodus chapter 25. And that's what they did. They constructed this amazing piece of house, if you will, a mobile home for the Lord called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. This was a mobile home that was transported through the wilderness. Uh, They would set up the tent. Then they would pull up the, the stakes and move on to the next site and the next site. And we have at least 33 different stops on the way that they made to the promised land. Eventually, it was supposed to go to the city of Jerusalem where the Lord would choose to place His name there. But in the meantime, the tabernacle had been in different locations. And one previous to this one was in Shiloh. And then the Lord had the tent of meeting or the tabernacle moved from Shiloh to a city called Nob. And that's where we find David visiting is in Nob, which is where the tabernacle was constructed and set up at the, that particular time. So read with me then uh, in verse 1 of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. Now, why would the priest, the high priest, be trembling uh, in meeting David? Well, he's shocked because he goes on to say, he says to him, Why are you alone and no one's with you? This caused an alarm to go off with Ahimelech, being shocked that he's alone. He had known of David's history. He had known that David was a giant killer. And now he's appearing out of nowhere, it seems, and he shows up at the tabernacle site and he confronts the priest and the priest probably thought this was going to be a problem. But he finds out differently. Verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from woman. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is called the showbread elsewhere, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Has anybody ever told a lie? And if you have, then don't raise your hand. Wow. We have a perfect church. Yes, we have all lied, have we not? Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Psalm 58 and verse 3. And believe it or not, this is is what what we find David, a man after God's own heart doing 
is lying and deceiving the high priest so he could access that food that he was carrying from the tabernacle. And if you look at the picture here, this is the table of showbread or of his presence where these loaves were placed weekly. And every Sabbath day, the old loaves were being replaced by hot and fresh loaves. Happened to be the Sabbath likely then that the priest was coming out with the loaves of bread, which were older and then had been replaced by the fresher pieces of bread. So David sees him with the bread and he's asking for this for himself. And he informs him that what he was doing was simply to go on a mission for the king. And this was a pretense. This was false. This is not true. Now, this is a man after God's own heart. This is hard to explain. We're going to find other things in David's life that seem to contradict someone who's categorized after a man after God's own heart. But I think all of us, as children of God, when we get saved, we become people after God's own heart. To some degree or another, we love the Lord. When you got saved, God revealed to you how much He loved you, and you in turn realize how much you're loved of God. Though we continue to grow in that reality, we can't get enough of that truth, how much He loved us. Well, David was a man after God's own heart. The fact is that we are all, at some time or another, we've broken the commandment, Bearing false witness. And I can testify to that personally. As I quoted the verse in Psalm 58, that we go astray as soon as we be born speaking lies. And I'll give you a confession right here. When I was in grammar school, the first grade, I think it was probably the first test I had to take as a student in grammar school. Well, I happened to have sitting next to me Carol Massey. She was an A-type student. She was just... She knew everything, it seemed. Now, I'm in the first grade, right? We're handed the sheet of paper. We have to fill out the paper and uh, answer the questions. And guess where my head went? To Carol Massey's desk. And I copied it. I practically copied everything that she had written down, and I really didn't take the test. And I passed it in as if it was my own. Well, you might have thought I would have got away with that, right? Scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Well, when the teacher went to correct all the papers, she noticed that my name was not on any of the papers. Guess what I did? I copied Carol Massey's name on the paper. You can see... Maybe that's the way, that's the, that's the reason why I am what I am. It goes back even to those early days. How in the world do you do such a thing? So she, she brought me up to her desk and said, she, did, she covered up the name on the top of the page. She says, Gary, is this your paper? I said, yes, it is, Mrs. Shapiro. <laughs> and she said, why did you write Carol Massey's name on the paper? You cheated. And boy, I had to go to the principal. I got reprimanded. I got scolded. My parents were notified. And I was in big trouble. But it just shows you where... And human nature goes. We're, we're infected with sin and we have the tendencies to be sinful. Even as believers. I'll give you another example. I was on a mission trip a couple of weeks ago and uh, my roommate, for some reason, it's 75 degrees at night. It's sweltering hot. I can't even put a sheet over me. It's so hot. My roommate 
goes to bed with his long johns on and long sleeves. He has a problem for physical reasons that he had to cover up his body and he has two sheets over him. The window is kind of half open because he's kind of trying to be nice to me. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm just blistering hot. I went over to the window on his side and I opened it wide. Well, in the morning when we woke, when I woke up, uh, there was a tremendous rainstorm in the middle of the night. The rain came through the window and not only wet his second half of the bottom of the bed, but also his suitcase was filled with water. His shoes were like this much in deep depths of water. And I said, what happened? He goes, he said, oh, we had a rainstorm last night. For some reason, the window was open. And I'm like, "Mm, no. You know, he's a new roommate. I don't want to like look so bad. So I just kept it to myself for a while. Like, how can I tell him this? And, my conscience bothered me, though. And after a while, I had to say, Paul, you know, it was, it was my, me that opened up the window. It wasn't the wind that blew it open. I opened it up. I was so hot. I'm sorry that this happened to you. Well, I want to tell you that my, in my human nature, my sinful human nature, I didn't want to make that confession. He would have never blamed me. He never would have thought that I did it because I wasn't telling him anything that happened. But I felt a conviction about it, and I had to say something about it. You know, the book of Proverbs says that there are seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. They're worth knowing what they are. And two out of the seven says, it starts with a proud look, but secondly, it says a lying tongue, and in the list as well is a false witness that speaks lies. To me, a liar is almost the worst sin that anyone can commit. In, in my opinion, in some ways. I never tolerated that with my children. If they lied, that was it. They were in big trouble. I said, if you tell the truth, you can expect mercy. But if you tell a lie, then you're going to have to expect some punishment for lying. Just very unacceptable. It tells us that those who are in hell are liars. It tells us that those who are without are those who produce lies. But here we find David lying. So we have to ask the question, is lying justifiable? It comes up sometimes from time to time if we're reading our Bible and we see other instances of people lying to other people. Can you think of an example? Just name the person. Abraham. Who? What was the other one? Rahab. Thank you. In the book of Joshua, I was thinking of that one where, remember, they came into her home and they were look. They heard that some spies had entered into the land and had gone into her house. So she had hid them on the roof of the house and said, "No, they went that way." Well, they were right upstairs. She lied. And in the book of Samuel. We have other instances. David's wife, Michal, had pretended that he was sick in bed, remember, when they were coming to capture him. So they they went elsewhere uh, and came back again. And then the same thing. He was in bed and they discovered that it was really a mannequin that she had made. She lied. Jonathan lied about David's absence from the table, saying that he had a family obligation and he couldn't be in attendance. 
What do you think about Corey Tenboom when she hid the Jews in the home? And when the Gestapo came looking for them, she said, No, they're not here. Don't have any. They're not, they're not here. Was that okay? Well, David says in his own mind, I'm hungry, my men are hungry. Maybe to the point of starvation and death, who knows? So getting back to the question, is lying justifiable? All of these cases I have brought before you are really like do-or-die cases. It's a matter of death. I mean, if somebody came to your door with a gun and say, I want to... I, I want to Shoot your children. I'm going to shoot your children. Where are they? And you said they're not. Would you be lying if you said they're not home and you saved their lives? Yes, you lied. But in this instance, we would have to say that was justifiable. But who wants to go on a record in saying that lying is justified ever? Certainly, I wouldn't want to propagate that. But I think we have to make allowances under very very, very severe circumstances like we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, the priest was willing to consent on the basis that a condition had to be met. It was dependent on the young men having to be ceremonially clean. If they were ceremonially unclean, it would not be permissible. Now, we know that from the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the teaching about the bread is that it's consecrated. It's designated as being holy and it's specified as to who can partake of the bread. Now, once the bread is removed from the table of showbread, it now goes to the family of the priest for them to eat. The priest himself is right in saying, this is not common bread. This is not everyday bread. This is bread that's consecrated. It's holy bread. Nevertheless, David boldly is saying, what is under your arm? What are you carrying? And then he informs them, I'm carrying consecrated bread. But he's still pleading with him, saying, I would like it for myself and for the men that I am with, the young men. Well, the priest understands the starvation apparently, but has to put the condition upon them. Are the young men with you ceremonially clean? Have they, he says specifically there, have, have they kept themselves from woman? And obviously what he's referring to is the conjugal relationships between a man and a woman in marriage. And under Levitical law, there was uncleanness that would categorize the, the, the man particularly engaged in the act. You could go back to Leviticus if you wanted to, to see what I'm talking about. And that's found in Leviticus chapter uh, 15, verse 16, and also chapter 21, verses 4 to 6. And then remember when the children of Israel were going to Mount Sinai, it says that they were, again, refrained from having been with woman. Think of another example. How about uh, Uriah the Hittite? Remember when David had gotten Bathsheba pregnant, Uriah's wife, and he was on the battlefield. His trick was to bring him back from the battlefield and have him sleep with his wife so that when news broke out that she was pregnant, it would be understood that Uriah the Hittite, 
The husband was the father of the child. But what did Uriah the Hittite do? Very commendable thing. When he was even intoxicated from all the liquor that was provided to him by David, hoping that he, he would be more inclined to go and sleep with his wife, it says that he stayed at the door and did not go in. And he, David tried to do it again, the same thing. He would not do it. David said, what's the problem? He says, how can I, when God's people are in holy war, how can I do this thing under these conditions? What an honorable man Uriah the Hittite was to not listen to the king under those circumstances. And sometimes, uh, even though a king may tell us something, we have to do what's right no matter what the, what, whatever the cost might be. Lying and deception. It's puzzling. And David is not right in doing this. Uh, it turns out, as you know, if you read the next chapter, we'll get to that, it ends up that he was the cause for the priest and many priests being put to death because of David's lying. He also ends up being in the camp of the Philistines after that as well. So David is on a decline at this point. And I think this is probably the earliest stage of it. So he's lying. Now the Lord Jesus brings this particular section up in Matthew chapter 12 when his own disciples... His followers were hungry as well. And they seemed to go against what was the normal code of the day. Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping to an extreme the religious leaders believed in. And David and his men seemed to have, excuse me, Jesus' disciples and himself seemed to violate that code of conduct of participating in going into the cornfields, rubbing the corn and eating of it, and that was considered a violation of the Sabbath. So Jesus is challenged how that this could be taking place. And Jesus says, don't you know what it says in the Scriptures, how that when David was hungry and his men, he went to the house of God and that the priest gave him the holy sacred bread. Jesus is saying that what supersedes ceremonial requirements is that which is the necessities that people would have at the particular moment. Jesus' men, like David's men, they were both hungry. They needed food to survive, to get along. They were going against the letter of the law. They were considered Sabbath breakers. David's was considered by asking to desacralize, de- I guess would be the word be, the word would be, to deconsecrate those sacred elements and allow a common man, a lay person to eat that which only belonged to the priestly family. But the high, the priest, Ahimelech, the high priest, he gives in to this. He yields to it. And Jesus picks up on this and says, there was no defilement there. What he is in essence saying is that grace reigned in this instance. In each case, the moral, the moral principle overrides the ritual code. Jesus says you need to learn 
What it says in the scriptures, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy. People like to glory in the outward ritual, appearance, but not in heart. There was an advertisement in the newspaper this week I saw where the synagogue in Worcester, one of the synagogues, had a, what is called, they're calling a Torathon. A Torathon. What they want to do, obviously, is to proselytize people by inviting them to come to their synagogue to be taught on what are all the Jewish rituals and practices of the day in hopes that that will be attractive to people, appealing to them. And ironically, those kinds of things are very appealing uh, for people to practice because they're, they're doing something. It makes them feel good. It's sort of built into our sinful nature sometimes that religiousness is what makes us feel comfortable uh, in, our, in our lifestyles. You know, when I was an altar boy, um, for instance, to give you an example of some of these kinds of unwritten codes or, or things that had to be abided by was I was an altar boy and I remember a woman was coming up to, to give some bread that was supposed to be blessed by the priest and she's talking to me. I'm not sure if it was in Albanian and I didn't quite understand everything she was saying and the priest was behind the icon screen and I said, why don't you go and talk to him? And she said, oh no, a woman is not allowed to go inside of the icon section or the, where, the, where the priest operates, so to speak. She couldn't cross over. And I also found out, for instance, that women, when they have babies, are not allowed to come to church until after 40 days because they're considered impure. Those kinds of things, you could say, are reflected in the Old Testament. You would find examples of that. That's why we would say that high churches like the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church is sort of a blend of, of um, Judaism, paganism, and Christianity. Those three combined is what, in essence, they are. And those kinds of rules oftentimes are things that keep people in sort of a very regimented lifestyle. And it gives them a sense of okayness with the way they are. And they don't see the need for mercy or sacrifice, and not sacrifice. People do like the glory in the outward ritual, in appearance and not in heart. Jesus says in John 7, 22, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. He's saying, you hypocrites! I'm doing well on the Sabbath and you're criticizing me. You're bringing judgment upon me. Yet you folks recognize, don't you, that you are circumcising, doing a work. If the eighth day for that child happens to fall on the Sabbath, you will do the work of circumcising the child to keep the law. How is that match up? David's adultery. When Nathan brings that to his attention, when he brings the illustration out about a man that had many, many sheep in his stalls and he goes and borrows one from someone who had only one that he cherished, he took that one to himself and killed the, the lamb and, and provided it as food. 
And when David was told this by Nathan, what do you think of that, David says? Execute judgment on him. Then Nathan says, you're the man. He got the point. He got the point that he had taken the wife of Uriah for himself and then had Uriah put to death. What did Moses' law require then? That he should be put to death. Read Deuteronomy 22. Read elsewhere. You will see that adulterers were to be stoned. And David, if anybody filled the category of an adulterer, David did. Point blank. No questions asked. But what does the Lord say? The mercy that was shown to David is exceptional. I have put away thy sin. Judgment should have fallen on David. Unquestionably. But yet God shows mercy to him. Thinking too about the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8. When the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say? This is a big test. Moses and Jesus. Jesus and Moses. Which one are we going to listen to? Jesus, are you going to obey what Moses said? And they were all followers of Moses' law, his writings, etc. And Jesus, as you know the story, he stoops down and he writes on something on the ground. He stands up and he says, Which of you is without sin? Cast the first stone. They all went out from the oldest to the youngest, and Jesus is left alone with an adulterous woman. What is the hope that Jesus could bring to this woman? Should she not be condemned? Moses said she should be condemned. That's what the written law says. That's the letter of the law. But Jesus exceeds that and says to the woman, Woman, where are those thine accusers? She says, I have none. And then Jesus says, Neither do I condemn thee. Praise the Lord for that kind of a finger pointing. Neither do I condemn thee. Hallelujah. An adulterer, an adulteress, cleansed of their sin. That's the kind of God we have. And such were some of us. We can praise the Lord that the letter of the law was not applied to us or we would be condemned. If Jesus came down from heaven with the Ten Commandments, certainly we were all commandment breakers and we, were, we would all be subject to death and condemnation. But the Lord Jesus came down differently. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Mercy shouts out, Mercy, 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 I have put away thy sin. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Gospel of John begins by these words in chapter 1. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for grace that reigns, that trumps, over religion. Religion is rules. Whereas grace is the Spirit of God working in the heart of people, generating life, creating them in them desires to please the Lord. Oftentimes, 
pastors, preachers, priests, you name it, they want to apply the letter of the law oftentimes when they don't see the better picture. They don't see the need of giving grace and mercy, forgiveness, kindness and love. The fruit of the Spirit that should be evident in all of us certainly should be able to be executed in times when instead of judgment being applied, mercy can be. And I'm not in any way trying to say that we need to compromise truth. If there's a person that is worthy of being excommunicated, the person is refusing to repent, wants no assistance, wants no help, is not willing to turn their ways, and you have no other recourse, it's obvious that that person is in a state of rebellion and possibly likely unsaved. And that's why Paul says, to put away from among you that wicked, not brother, but wicked person. Because the action of the individual is such that it's classified as wicked and categorizes him as being wicked as well. We don't know uh, when excommunication happens sometimes, whether we're putting away a person who's a believer in a backslidden state or we're putting away an unconverted person that never had life in the first place and therefore could never really have their life changed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does to people. It brings life into the heart. In this story here, we have an excellent example that Jesus cites for us so that we can learn from this. And how often does the New Testament utilize the Old Testament? It's so important that we understand the Old Testament because from the Old Testament there's learning. Whatever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. A New Testament person should look back at the Old and be able to draw from it. Like the Scripture says, all Scripture is given by inspiration is profitable. We can read the Old Testament and should come, come away with some profit from it. But when, when we notice that the New Testament comments on the Old, we can say we have a perfect commentary on the Old Testament. What would we do if we didn't have the New Testament? How would we understand Lot's life? We would, we would, we would not have believed that he was a, a child of God. But the New Testament tells us that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day by their unlawful deeds and, and what he saw and what he heard. New Testament says that Lot was a righteous man. We wouldn't know that the magicians that, that imitated Moses' miracles was Jannies and Jambres. The New Testament fills us in on that. And on and on we have many examples where the New Testament takes the old and interprets it for us. We have the New Testament, the book of Galatians, tells us that Hagar and Sarah each represented law and the other one represented grace. One was bondage, the other one was liberty. And here the Lord Jesus is reminding them to look at the Old Testament. You know, there's two ways that people uh, fail. And if you don't have one, you fail. Or the other, you'll fail. They need both to be applied. And Jesus comes across strongly with this in Matthew 22, 29. He says, you do err not knowing the Scriptures, number one, nor the power of God. Some people know the Scriptures, but don't know the power of God. Some people know the power of God, but don't know the Scriptures. When you combine the two, then you have the ingredients of true Christ-likeness. Let's break that down a little bit. What do I mean? What is that power? Well, we read in 2 Timothy 3, 
about certain ones that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. In other words, they have not experienced the power of God. You know, the most difficult thing for a person who's not saved is to try to live the Christian life. It's, it's out of their category. It's, it's not in their wheelhouse. They can't perform those things. Because for the born-again person, we've got an energy, a desire to want to please the Lord. God has liberated us from things that once kept us in bondage. That's knowing the power of God. And every one of us has, as the Scripture says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The power may be of God and not of us. What is that power? The precious blood of Jesus was shed for the remission of our sins. And after we believe that gospel, it says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The earnest of our inheritance. You know, when the children of Israel were heading towards the promised land, Moses conceded to letting the spies go in and to check out the land. I believe it's in Numbers 13. When the spies go into the land, what do they do? They noticed, besides the Anakims that were giants in the land, they also noticed the fruit of the land, the clusters of the grapes. And what they did is they brought the grapes back. Ten out of the twelve said, Whoa, the Anakims, the Anakims, we can't win. Let's turn back. Let's go back to Egypt. But only two, Caleb and Joshua, had the good report. It says they were of another spirit. That's what we should be to the world. We're of another spirit. We're not like the world. We were, but now we're not. We've got a power installed in us that makes us different. So the two men come back and they show them, the, they have them, a cluster of them, a bunch of them, they bring them, showing them the fruit of the land. So that they could taste it and see what's ahead. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is to us now. He gives us a sense of what glory is going to be like. He gives us a sense of what it is to be in the presence of the Lord. To walk with Christ. To have Him dwelling in us and living in us. That's amazing that we have, like the Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If someone hasn't tasted the Lord and seen that He is good... This book is dry. Church is boring. Reading the Bible is, is senseless. I get, get nothing out of it. I'm going nowhere with it. Nothing's moving my heart. Now, I know a Christian can get in a stalled state. And sin can come around us. Like, like a, a good illustration I, I've heard in the past was that if you have a, a, a ship that's docked and the winter starts to come, and um, you don't think too much about it because you ha- you're going to have to move it at some point. But as the winter comes on and the cold weather becomes colder and colder, guess what happens? The ice starts to form around the ship and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. That's what sin does when it's allowed in our lives. It grows up around us and prohibits us from being mobile, from being active for the Lord 
from being what the Lord has called us to be, to be soldiers, to be athletes, to be walking with the Lord. Those are the images that God gives. Being farmers, being patient, waiting for, for the harvest to come, and so on and so forth. But when sin starts to invade our lives, it will encompass us. We need to recognize it quickly and break it immediately. Otherwise, it will get thicker and thicker and we'll have a more difficult time to try to break that mold that sin has brought us into and we can't seem to get ourselves out of it. You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's what Jesus said. All error comes from those two things. Scriptures and the power of God. Power of God is the life of God. There was a book that was written that was actually used uh, in George Whitfield's conversion called the, the Life of God in the Soul of Man. Man, what a wonderful way to put what we have. If you want to describe yourself why you are the way you are, because I have the life of God in me. I have the life of God in me. And that's what makes me different from other people. And it makes us like each other because we have the same life in one another. I'm not any better than you and you're not any better than me when it comes to this particular angle of understanding our salvation. We all have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have life. The other error is you do not know the Scriptures. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. That's quite an exhortation by the Lord that we should know the Scriptures. Now, I know we're not all going to be students of the Scriptures in a way that we're going to be able to, to, to break everything down. And that's why God has given teachers to the church to be able to teach and instruct so that we can grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. But we're all expected to be studiers of the Word. Search of, searches of the Word. Search the Scriptures, Jesus said. In them you think you have, they are, you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. Well, I want to read something that's going to edify my soul if it's about Jesus. Well, it's that power that changes lives. It's that power within me that David could say, that bread that's underneath your, your, your arms, we need that for bread. It's Jesus saying to His disciples, Sure, go into the cornfield and get some corn for us. We're hungry. That's what matters. That was a necessity. And we need to feed on the necessities of life. When we try to live by rules, we're not going to be happy campers. But if we're living in the grace of God, it makes such a difference. Religion will bind you. Religion will... will, will, will handcuff you. It will gag you. It will make you... And I heard a sister I was at, the, at the Bolton conference and she had said something like... Uh, and I never expected it to come from her, a pastor's wife, but the way she put it was, we need more cheerfulness among re- Reformed people. Well, Reformed or otherwise, I think all of God's people should be cheerful. Now, I think there are things that bring us down, obviously, and they should. They're legitimate. You know, we, we have to mourn at times. We're afflicted at times, etc., etc. But, but in general, we ought to be a cheerful people. Paul says to, was it Agrippa? I count myself happy, O king. He was considering himself blessed. And that's what every one of us is blessed. You are blessed of God. What greater condition could you be in than to be blessed of God? We are the shalomers, the ones that have been shalomed by God. 
We are, he has blessed us. We have been given great welfare from the Lord and we should be the happiest people on the earth. Matter of fact, the Scriptures tells us that we are the excellent in all the earth. That's the life of a believer. And that's why the rules and the regulations are those things that would bind us. 2 Corinthians 3 is powerful on that point. talks about the law killeth, but the Spirit gives life. The law says, no, you can't have this consecrated bread. The law said, no, you can't, you can't uh, husk corn on the Sabbath day. That's what the law would say. And sometimes people want to apply the law in that way, the letter of the law. Not to say that we, we, uh, we renege on the Scriptures or that we substitute them, but in some ways, grace does weave its way through and sometimes under certain circumstances, when the letter of the law would say this, we have to see grace being in them and through them and in one sense above them. And that's a judgment call. I'm not talking about clear scriptures. Thou shalt not steal. There's no, no getting around that. We can't be crooks. You know, we can't steal from, from our boss or we can't steal from our workplace. That would be absolutely wrong and sinful. The Scriptures tells us that very clearly. But there are sometimes areas of Scriptures that are, we could say they are gray areas. They're the white spaces. And sometimes we don't know. And I'm asked, and I'm sure you are too sometimes, well, what does the Scripture say about this or what does it say about that? Well, if it doesn't say specifically, I have to say, it doesn't really specifically address that. But, the Scripture tells us that all the Scripture is given to us so that we can be fully equipped, so that we can be thoroughly furnished. So even though we may not be able to pinpoint a particular verse for something or other, I think we can gather up from the whole of the Scriptures the, the, the grace of God, the truth of God, so that when it comes to having to maybe answer a question or maybe to make a decision on something or another, that we can see these principles as being found in the Word and from the Word, though we may not have a particular Scripture for that. When it came to the building of the pieces of furniture in the Old Testament, something like the laver, for instance, there is no, there's no details on how the laver was to be constructed as far as the size of it, I believe it's only the weight of it that's given. So, how would you know what to build? Well, the Scripture says that the Lord gave to Moses a pattern of the tabernacle with a heavenly vision, but that's all he only had. He didn't have anything in writing. Sometimes the legalist wants to have it, you know, black and white. We shouldn't have to have. We should know our Bible, and we need to live, live the Bible. If anyone gets out of this message that I'm somehow trying to say we, we can live by grace and not by the Bible, no, 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 no. They're married together. Absolutely married together. Just like knowing the Scriptures and the power of God, those two are combined. If you have one and not the other, you're going to be a deficient Christian. If you have the power and not the Word, and if you have the Word and not the power, and I'm talking about power in the sense that you're living in the Spirit, and that's what we're encouraged to do, live in the Spirit. And David, I think, exhibits, and Jesus uses this as an example to say, here's an example where the necessity overrode the written code of the law, where grace trumps religion. 
So we have to be mindful of how much grace should characterize the life of us as believers. And I hope that we can think about that verse, which has been coming before me strongly all week. You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your written Word. Thank You that all Scripture is given by inspiration of You, Lord. And how we need, Lord, to be able to interpret it wisely. Lord, and to be able to give the sense thereof. And so, O oh God, we thank You that You've given to us the Spirit that enables us, Lord, to be able to understand Your mind and to be able to uh, live a life, Lord, uh, other than just simply living by some kind of a coded law that man has erected for our purposes to try to keep us in some sort of a regimented fashion. We thank You, Lord, that Your grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Thank You, Lord, that You empower us to be able to, to live for You and live in You by the life You give to us so that, Lord, we're not under some sort of external obligation of rules and some kind of a bondage spirit of letter-keeping, Lord, and not enjoying the full liberty of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to have the right balance and understanding of such a topic as we covered this morning that we may be able to enjoy the life that You give us, Lord, so that we can live it to the fullest and honor You the most. And for anyone, Lord, that doesn't know You, we pray that the Spirit would convict their heart Bring them to an understanding of the Gospel. Open their eyes that they might see that the precious blood of Jesus is the power of God to forgiveness of sins, even for a sinner like them. Hear our cry, Lord. Bless our time with one another today. In the meal to follow as well, we give You praise and thanks, O Lord, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.